Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone. I'm coming to you from McCord University, and I'm here today with my friends and a colleague, Gregory Quinn. He's a maître d'enseignement et de recherche à l'Institut de Sciences du Sport at the Université de Lausanne. So for the non-Francophones among us, that's a senior lecturer at the Sports Science Institute at Lausanne University. And he's here to talk about a, a new book at which, of which he's one of the editors. The book is called Des Réseaux et des Hommes, Participation et Contribution de la Suisse à l'Internationalisation du Sport. It's in other words, um, networks and men, participation and contribution of the Swiss in the internationalization of sport. It's out from Edition Affil, which is part of the Press uh, Universitaire de Suisse in 2019. Thank you very much for joining us, Gregory. Thank you. <laughs> Pardon me, by the way, for mangling uh, much of that French. Uh, <laughs> I, don't get, perfect. <laughs> I don't get enough opportunity to speak it. Uh, Gregor, I wanted to start, um, we've known each other for a little while now, but the whole time I've known you, you've been a, a fairly eminent sports historian uh, involved with a number of different uh, networks of sports historians in Europe. And I wanted to know uh, how you got your start as a sports historian. Um, I think it's like, it's not not saying that my history is like history, but it's, it's a very small history of a lot of us. I think it's, a part of chance uh, or luck, a part of opportunity at one time. Uh, after my baccalaureate in France, I started to study sport, but my first aim was to study history, but my mom told me that there is no jobs there and you have to study something else. So I started with sport. Finally, not finding myself very well in sports, I could have, the, could have the opportunity to study history in parallel to sports at university, so up to the master degree. So I have a master degree in sports and a master degree in history. And then that's when I met my PhD supervisor who supervised my master thesis. And then he took me with him when he had the chance to get a position in, in Lausanne at the university. And I started my PhD in sport history there. And Back then, 2006, it's pretty much when my career as a sport historian started somehow. And since then, uh, in Lausanne, with two years in between when, where I went to London to do my postdoc, uh, I have the opportunity and the chance to continue working around sport history. So when you uh, started as a sports historian, what were you initially uh, researching, Gregor? What were some of your early projects? So the first project was, like most of us, the, the PhD project. 
And uh, I remember a discussion with my PhD supervisor, Nicolas Bancel. Uh, he told me that what is important while writing a PhD is finding a luck a lack of historiography, so something that our fathers in history haven't checked or analyzed that much and just go in that little space and study it to give something that historiography in general can then after use to, to continue the process of history, which is a never-ending process, of course, but still you have to find your place. So that's And that's when I he pointed one of these small places, which was in the French-speaking Europe, the, the, the question of the medical gymnastics in the 18th and 19th century, saying, okay, this is quite important, has been under-researched. And he proposed me to study that small uh, piece of history, which was then my PhD project, Uh, for five years between 2006 and 2011. Uh, so yes, I, I think it's it's pretty much the the meeting or the 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 point important is yes when we started to discuss with my with my supervisor somehow. And uh, as you say, after a while you left uh, Lausanne. You you <laughs> you were in other places. You've been working with um, a number of different networks, Raris and Cash. Uh, but then you you went back and in some ways that helped um, helped lead to this current project. Can you tell me a little bit about about uh, this current project, the uh, Réseau des Hommes? Yeah, so so it's it's linked with the um, with the the whole trajectory of myself somehow, because as I said, I came to Lausanne in 2006, but still at that moment I already had my project about. Francophone Europe, medical gymnastics, 18th, 19th century. Uh, but then I came to Switzerland and as a foreigner, so a French, and even if I was in Lausanne where the language is French, so I didn't feel like in abroad that much. Still, I was abroad, so I was, I was not someone from here. And my, um, how can I say that, my, my integration process went through history. So I started to look at Swiss port history at that time, saying, does something exist? Um, and I discovered that, of course, I had a, some colleagues in Switzerland already working about Swiss port history, but it was not that much uh, a topic. At university, my supervisor, when he came in 2006, let's say he was the first one to be a sport historian appointed by a university. So... There was no other sports science institute where a sport historian was working. And so the sport history dynamic was quite small. And that, that's what is the roots somehow of the Réseau des Hommes. So I started then in 2007, also using the opportunity of 2008 when Switzerland, along with Austria, hosted the Euro. So 2008 we had the opportunity to start some research around Swiss football history. Uh, and that's when I did my first article, or I published my first article on Swiss sport history, on football uh, in, in Switzerland in the interwar period. And it's, it's pretty much like the roots. And then 
I started to develop this, like after my PhD, I continued on medical gymnastics and this because I was then recognized as one of the experts of, of the field, but still I had the, the feeling in me that my origin or what I had to do was perhaps not to work that much on medical gymnastics in Europe, uh, but perhaps, let, let's say, work more on Swiss sport history. And I did my, my postdoc in, in England, uh, working in between the roots of sports in universities there, working also on several other topics. But then when I came back in 2015, uh, on, on the position I, I have now, it was very clear for me that I had to put all my energy as a historian in uh, Swiss sport history. And I started to uh, call some sports federation to send emails to archives, centers uh, in several cantons, also in Bern, in the, in the capital, etc. And what I discovered is was that Probably Switzerland in Europe, and if you do a comparison, is one of the country where sports archives are uh, the bigger. So we have a lot of archives. It's part due to the fact that Switzerland never took part in wars. So everything has been kept in better way, of course, because we all know that when you have wars like the Second World War, for instance, it's always a threat to the archives because... Yeah, archives are, as we know, all uh, a threat for authoritarian regime and so far. But still, so Switzerland was a safe place also for archives and also for sports archives. So, for instance, for the Swiss Football Federation, we can find everything back to the first meeting in 1895. So it's, it's very, very interesting to, to do this. And I, then I started to send an email very systematically to every other federation, asking them if they have archives, if they have done some inventory, if the archives are safe, if there is a threat, also sometimes help, helping them or offering my help to work or to go along with those archives, etc., etc. So that's really like a, how can I say it, like uh, um, a process or a dynamic that I wanted to be rooted in, in the archives and in what the sports movement uh, had as documentation. Yeah, I mean, one of the... Oh, very yeah, no, so that's one of the things that really comes through in this project um, is the kind of immense information that's available in... in the Swiss sources that's maybe not available in other places. Now, for people who haven't haven't read it, obviously, um, it's in French. That the, much the title makes clear. But it's also an edited volume. So, how did you um, gather together the other people to participate? Was there a conference that you all met at, or how did you how did you get the other participants? So, in in Switzerland, we are, as I mentioned, like a, a very small network of of sport historians. We are not. It cannot be compared to other countries, like for instance in France, where we know there is a there are dozens and dozens of sport historians like working together, like doing some joint projects, etc. So in Switzerland, it's it's more like a very very small 
let's say garden or whatever. And so when we started with the project, it was quite clear from the beginning who was going to be part of it. Like there was another project led by a more experienced professor uh, in Neuchâtel, for instance, and his two PhD students, uh, Benjamin Zumwalt and Jérôme Gonia, it was very clear that as they were one of the two also working in archives with documents, that they were going to be part of uh, the project. But but more, uh, what can I say more? It's also very important to me and also to Philippe and to Christophe who um, were with me on, the, on this project that it's like, Doing some small history uh, is also something that has to do with with friends. Somehow, people you you know that they are working well, and you go you can go along well with them. You can exchange some emails. Uh, also, every time asking about deadlines, about contents, and very honestly. So that's that's also part of this. That's also why because why. For, for instance, someone like Nicolas Betty is also part of the project, even if he's not Swiss, even if he's not working, especially with Swiss documents, but more about the connection of the Italian sports elites with Switzerland. It was also very clear that we had to have him uh, with us uh, in the project. And, and even if you look at the three that like me and Philippe and Christophe who were editing the 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 project it's also a, a question of of generation because christophe jacou is more experienced he has more like a sociologist background and he was one of the name that i met when i came to switzerland in 2006 because he had already edited two other volumes sport en suisse and uh, sport en forme in 2000 and 2001 and he is one of the founding father of Sport history, even if he's a sociologist, he is definitely one of the founding father of sport history in Switzerland. So for Philippe and me, it was it was an honor to have him on board, and it was an honor to discuss everything with him. And it was a great chance for us, like to to edit this volume with with him. So in your introduction, one of the things you all lay out is that. Um, the place that you all think this book should have in the historiography. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you how you think um, this fits in with the earlier work on Swiss sports history, like uh, Sport en Suisse, uh, Sport en Forme. So uh, I'm not going to enter in too deep in, 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 in what our colleagues have done, but one of our aim, also with the people that were working uh, already at the beginning of the 2000s, uh, it's it's. I think the step we are taking in in Swiss sport history is now having projects which are more dense in some way, like with a topic which is clearer, with every contribution that are like around the main topic, giving some as a collective book here, having some points which are all connected to the main question of uh, the book, which is here, like the connection between individual biographies and the network between those people. Because if you look at the book that were published earlier, like 
sport en Suisse ou en sport en forme, it was more like a patchwork, using the patchwork world as something very positive, but it was still like a patchwork. So everything was connected to the Swiss sport history somehow, but still perhaps with less coherence in between the books. So several cap chapters are very, very interesting. And even now we find some very great uh, elements in those chapters. But I think the next step, as we have already observed in other countries, the next step for Swiss sport history is probably to do some more coherent work around topics, around questions like the one we had at first in this book. So I think it's a good time to just say clearly, um, I think for me as a reader, one of the main, let's say one of the main arguments you make throughout is that even though Switzerland is a very, in some ways, a small country, it plays an inordinate role in the history of global sport. There's a, is a quote that you use um, at the beginning in, in the introduction, je suis petit, mais je veux vivre, laissez-moi uh, d'engager. You know, um, so I wonder if you can tell me, um, was that one of the goals and, and what is it that you're trying it throughout the, throughout the whole volume? What is it that you all are trying to say about what's particular about Switzerland in, in the realm of sport? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting because like it's, it's quite known for the sport historians, even more for the historians, perhaps that Switzerland's has a very special place in Europe. It's, it's something that is still interesting now in 2020. But um, of course, Switzerland was a very early, let's say, free state or democratic state just after 1848. And then we had this, this um, uh, English people like moving around Europe, doing the Grand Tour, etc., which was at the roots of tourism. And all those circulation created this idea that Switzerland is the small England on the continent. Like, And for the sports, it was very, very important because, of course, as we know, modern sports were invented, created, whatever, in England or on the British islands. And then it was transferred to the rest of the world. And Switzerland played a key role in the 19th century in this process, having a lot of clubs, a lot of clubs for British people, a lot of clubs for French, and then also having Swiss citizens going abroad, founding clubs in Italy, in France, in Spain. Like we know that the FC Barcelona was founded by a Swiss citizen back then. And that's, that's very interesting. But, the point of the book is like to look at the period just after, like when sports started to have some institution which were more um, clearly organized, like with, for instance, FIFA, which was founded in 1904 in Paris. But when it started to be more organized and more important in the football world in, at the beginning of the 1930s, the headquarter was moved from Paris to Zurich. And it's since then it's based in Zurich for several reasons. But, and then uh, it's interesting to note that a lot of Swiss citizens, for instance, were engaged at FIFA. Of course, 
all the jobs there, like for the secretariat and everything, was based on Swiss people working around and working for FIFA. Uh, but also some presidents, uh, some vice presidents, some general secretary were uh, Swiss. And Swiss citizens are very, very active around this. And the IOC has acquired a similar position being based in Lausanne since uh, the First World War, so even before uh, FIFA, also having some Swiss citizens active within IOC. So um, I think it's it's very interesting, but if you, if, if you want to understand this, we have to look also outside of the box or outside of Switzerland, because as everyone knows, we have a, an idea that a nation is something which is more or less based on, let's say, language. So France is the coherent region where people are speaking French, and that's where how it was built, how it developed itself, etc. Germany, the same with German, etc. But Switzerland is not a nation uh, based on the language because we have four uh, official language written in or recognized by the constitution. So. But it's, it's very interesting because even at, at the national level and sometimes at the local level, you have people in the sports institutions who are bilingual, trilingual. And so when they move up the ladder to, from the local level to the national level, uh, we observed that in the 1920s, 1930s, people were elected in central committees in the national federation were generally people who were already able to speak two, even sometimes three language. And then having presidents of the football federation, of the ski federation, etc., who were people able to speak several languages. And that's something perhaps very, very important to explain why then those guys who were active at the national level were then elected at the international level. Of course, having the FIFA in Zurich makes it easier for the Swiss leaders to be in contact with FIFA. But having the capacity of speaking maybe four, five, sometimes six languages is clearly a chance for the Federation who can then uh, rely on those competence to promote their sports around the world. So I think it's, it's, it's a very important point and it's one of the points of the book to, to show how uh, people... Uh, were active based on this, let's say, Swiss-made competence. And the other one, which is probably as much important as the one of, of the language, is the capacity to negotiate. Because we have a very special political system where there is no real majority. Or, For instance, in our government, now we have four parties from the left to the right, who are represented. And we have seven ministers. So the this number is like fixed. We always have seven ministers. We have two from the extreme right, two from the right, one from the center, and two from the left. And the president is someone which is changing every other year. And we always elect the one who is the oldest in the group of seven, not being the one that was uh, elected before so it's it's quite interesting so the president changed every other year 
Um, but it's interesting because the political line of the country is still defined by those seven people who are not from the same party, who have not the same vision for the future, who have not the same experience of the past, uh, who are not doing the same kind of jobs, etc., etc. But still, they have to work together to build the political line of the country. And we have the same process in the region, in the towns, on on the urban region, on the rural area. So it's everywhere it's like this. And I think it's very, very interesting because if you have people able to speak, let's say, four language, and if those people who are already able to speak this language, and if they have a very good capacity to negotiate, they are very they are ideal to become like sports leaders. So I think here you can start to understand why Swiss people are so important in sports federation, which is one of the points of our book, like to show this and to highlight how those networks are, are working. And it's one of the points I can make also based on what I said is for those reasons, it's even more important to have Swiss people perhaps not in the first world as a president or vice president, but maybe as a general secretary. And this history of the general secretaries of big institutions are still to be written. And I think we could discover a lot of things about the commitment of, of Swiss sports leaders mm -hmm. studying more in detail the, the general secretary's history. Yeah. Patrick Klestra is working on that project, isn't he? A, a kind of a general history of all the general secretaries of the Olympic committees, something he's, like that. His he, his now his project right now is studying the first three hundred uh, member of the IOC. So he's doing a very broad prosopography, very in detail around the biographies of the first three hundred uh, IOC members. So that's that's for a time period that goes from the beginning at the end of the 19th century up to the the Olympics that were organized in Munich in 1972. So that's that's the project he has like currently. So this book is divided into two sections, and I have um, I could ask some questions about that, but we've talked a lot in general in some generalities. Or I've I've led us that way. Um, but I'd like to, I'd love to talk to you about your chapter, um, Gregory, because I found that one of the most fascinating in, in the book, actually. And it, it in part is because I don't know that much about it. But your your chapter is actually about about skiing. And here I want to make sure I get the title right, so I need to I need to look at it while I read it. <laughs> um, but your 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 chapter is uh, along with Sebastian Callas called Structuration et Promotion du Ski en Suisse from 1920 to 1960. So can you tell me a little bit about how you how you came up with this working on working on this ski project? Yes, yeah, so first of all I have to also to to mention that uh, Sebastian he's a PhD student who works with me precisely on this on this uh, Swiss Swiss ski history uh, having as a aim to work, to write the Swiss ski history during the first half of the of the 20th century but 
But one of the questions we have, or I had already, and that's that's the question I asked him when he started, like, we, we all know that skiing used, or skis used uh, to, um, I don't know, to cross some snow fields. It's something that backs to the maybe 15, 15th century in Scandinavia or whatever. So if you had snow everywhere, you could not work. So you had to develop some tools to cross um, uh, snowfields. But skiing understood as alpine skiing, so let's say downhill or slalom, it's an invention similar or part of this movement of modern sports. So alpine skiing is a modern sport. So he has, it's a transformation of something that was used just to, uh, as a transportation uh, modus. Uh, and it's then transformed into, into, into a sport. So it, we could observe like a sportification process, like for other, the same like in, for other sports. Nordic skiing was invented a bit earlier, but alpine skiing uh, was invented or somewhere within the first three decades uh, of the 20th century. Uh, and our question was why and how this special way of skiing could be developed. So, because if you, if you look at Nordic skiing, it's something you can do on flat uh, lands. So it's, you don't need to have hills and mountains and things. But so is the problem that Switzerland does not have that much flat lands? Like I, I can say that 60% of the, the land of Switzerland is mountains or is recognized as mountains. So is it because people started to do Nordic skiing in the mountains that they developed alpine skiing? Or was it something very conscious? Because if you look at other history, the founding father of alpine skiing is uh, Arnold Lund, so the British, uh, who spent a lot of time in the Swiss mountains, especially in the Berner Oberland, uh, where he promoted uh, alpine skiing. So is it something like which was unconscious, doing some Nordic skiing uh, on hills, developing downhill? Or was it something that several people in particularly had as a project? And that, that was the, 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 our, our question. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty much like the, the question of who was first, you know, the, the egg or etc. So it's, it's, it's quite interesting and that's, that's what was our aim. And of course, as there is no suspense, like it's something that we all know, there is no, um, there is no one way history. So it's something, of course, people were conscious in developing Alpine skiing and in the same time period, people were experiencing things with Nordic skis, doing Alpine skiing, etc. So, and that leads to the official recognition of uh, Alpine skiing by the International uh, Ski Federation in 1930, having then in 1931, the first world championship 
of uh, Alapanski with downhill and slalom uh, organized in, in the Berne Oberland uh, in Switzerland. So Switzerland there played a key role. Maybe not as the first name, because as I mentioned, like Arnold Lund, who was almost half uh, Swiss, uh, was a kind of Swiss character in this history, but uh, Switzerland was the the playground of of skiing, if I if I can use this this word, like based on the playground of Europe, the book of Leslie Stephen, who was very important for alpinism uh, a couple of decades earlier. But Switzerland was was there a theater very very important, and that was uh, our aim there. Yeah, one of the things I loved about this chapter is how it brings together so many different stakeholders who don't necessarily all um, love skiing uh, or in the same way, or some of them maybe not even at all. I mean, you have the art, the Swiss army, you have hotelier, you have, um, you know, tourists, you have, you have sportsmen um, all getting together, sometimes meeting together at conferences, kind of arguing about, about who's going to control skiing and alpine skiing. So I'm wondering if you can tell us, you know, what did you, what did you find? So once, once we get out of maybe this early moment of this invention, how does it become popularized? And eventually, by the end of the chapter, you're arguing it's really democratized after World War II. So how, do, how does alpine skiing become popular? Because I think for most people um, who haven't been to Switzerland, one of the things they might know about it is that it's a place you could go to ski. Of course, like like it's perhaps the, the nicest place to ski. You know? It's not the cheapest, but it's the nicest. Um, <laughs> No, no. Uh, I think I think the, the process in Switzerland is not that different from other countries like Austria or France. But it's it's clear that Switzerland always had this problem of not being the cheapest place. So even if you go back to the early 30s, uh, they started to develop a new method to learn to ski, uh, which had to make the process of learning ski easier than the method that was uh, existing in uh, in Austria, because then they could use like advertisement to say, hey, maybe we are not cheaper, but it's easier to learn uh, in Switzerland skiing. And it's quite important because you have to remember that we are speaking here like if Switzerland was uh, la mecque of skiing and if it was easy to do alpine skiing. But we also have to remember that the first ski lift, which was built, was built in the middle of the 30s. And before the Second World War, we had maybe 10 to 12 ski lifts in the whole Alps of Switzerland. So if we speak about alpine skiing uh, in the 30s, where in places where there was no ski lift, we speak about having perhaps the Saturday climbing the mountain with the ski on your shoulder and doing some ski finally only on the Sunday after having had one night in a chalet or in a hut uh, on the mountain. So alpine skiing is also this, and we don't have to forget that it was this. So the development then of the infrastructure on ski lifts and teleferique, etc., it's something that started again or started for the first time after the Second World War. And that's when alpine skiing started to become uh, something easier to do 
as a skier, not only to learn, but also to practice, because it's very good to learn it. But then after you have to practice it, and then you need some infrastructure, ski lifts, etc. Um, so it's 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 quite interesting to to understand uh, this, and also it's based on the one point I made earlier. Like in Switzerland, sixty percent of the territory of the country is mountain. So we know that a mountain is not the easiest landscape to be used. So it's, it's very practical to, to do some ski slopes, etc. But if you do something else, it's complicated. And that's something that was clearly uh, promoted by the state, by the central state, the federal states. So they developed around the Second World War and especially after the Second World War, they developed a real program of uh, subvention that were given to the mountain region so they could develop themselves. So it's it's a real program, uh, state-driven, uh, which helped uh, alpine skiing to be democratized, democratized in the 60s and, and the 70s then later. Yeah, I, um, I also loved all of the uh, disputations between the different um, bodies that represented skiing in Switzerland uh, and even internationally. And I wondered if you could, because this, this section is really, um, your, your essay appears in the first section of the book, and it's really then about networks. So I'm wondering if you can um, tell us a bit more about these networks and how and why you ended up in networks. <laughs> I think I think it's 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 one point that I should have mentioned earlier because if you want to understand Switzerland and if you want to understand it quickly uh, you have to understand that Switzerland is based on associationism so everyone in this country is member of an association so and if you have an ID you develop an association so in the middle of the 30s you had three national associations uh, around skiing that's what we also mentioned in the chapter. But it's not that the three associations were in concurrence. They were developing some complementary aspects. So you had the Association Suisse des Clubs de Ski, so the Swiss Ski Federation, which was coordinating the ski clubs. You had the Inter-Association Suisse pour le Ski, which was developing the, the method to learn, uh, so the, the, the book, which was used to give some degrees to the uh, ski professors. And you had a third one, which was the Association des Écoles Suisses de Ski, so the association regrouping all the ski schools. And they were collaborating to promote, develop, highlight the importance of, of skiing. And I think it's very, very important to have this in mind, because if you have a problem in Switzerland, you the first reflex is to build an association because it will put you together with other people and it's the best way to find a solution. And it's something which is also helping Swiss sports leaders to have this culture of negotiation, of being mediators uh, of problems, then being useful for the uh, Fédération Internationale, so the International Federation. That's that's what... Uh, gave the opportunity to Marc Audelaire 
For instance, to be elected as the president of the International Ski Federation in 51, being then president until 98. So he remained president for 47 years. So that's, we never find, found another example of staying so long uh, in a presidency position in an international sports federation. So, and it was a Swiss guy. So it's very, very interesting to, to, to learn that this is because he was trilingual, quadrilingual. He was like used to do negotiation things. And he was member of several and several associations. So it's, it's very interesting to, to, to point this. And if you want to understand Switzerland again, it's, it's very important to have this in mind. With the talk of, um, I guess, kind of the importance of individual leaders, I, I'd love to turn to the second half of the book. I, I mentioned, too, before we do that, um, this first section of the book also includes really interesting essays um, from Jérôme uh, Gonya on on, um, on rugby and, and football. Uh, Nicolas Batty, as, as, as Gregory already mentioned, has written about uh, interconnections between Italy and sport. Christian Kohler has written about um, ice hockey and football. Uh, there's a, there's, a, there's a, a huge number of really interesting works in this book. Um, and I wish I could talk to all of them, but if we had all 10 of you on at the same time, I don't think it, I'd be able to keep you all straight. <laughs> There'd be too many voices on the, on the recording. You have to do it in person. Um, uh, the second section is about the role of men and in particular, um, how these men kind of, in some ways, always, as you say, in the introduction to the section, serve, serve themselves, serve their sport, but also a little, in a little ways, serve Switzerland to part of this bigger project of Swiss diplomacy and soft power. And so I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, in general, about the ways in which these Swiss sportocrats were um, working through these different fields, serving themselves, serving sports, serving Switzerland. No, it's 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 a very complex topic, and we are uh, also due to the work of uh, of, of Quentin Tonnerre, who also wrote a very very fascinating chapter, uh, but also uh, Philippe's one on Ernst Thoman, who was vice president of FIFA um, at the end of the fifties. I think it's it's a very complex matter. It's it's connected with everything I mentioned earlier somehow. So all those competences which are uh, uh, which are which can be found in in Swiss uh, citizens, but it's also something which is connected with the um, the way uh, in which Switzerland is positioning itself on the international échiquier. Uh, so it's. Switzerland is like a neutral country, <clears throat> and it's using this profile to play a key role in between other countries which are at war, which are after wars, etc. So, for instance, it's very interesting to note that Switzerland uh, played a key role in uh, having Germany joining again the international uh, sports sphere after the Second World War, especially in football. Uh, especially due to what Ernst Thoman could do negotiating with, between the national level and the international level. Uh, also using some margins, some spaces which were uh, available to negotiate, to discuss. So I think, I think it's, it's, it's something which uh, is interesting also because 
Switzerland is, is as a state and as a federal state, is leaving space for those kind of negotiation. If, if you think about other countries, like, for instance, France, which is very centralized and everything is decided in Paris and in very small number of circles, etc., I think Switzerland is more open somehow and it leaves spaces for those negotiations. Yeah, you're um, you're alluding to pe- pe- listeners who haven't read yet. Um, Gregory's alluding to uh, Philippe Bonnard's chapter on Ernst Thomann. It's called Le Posture de Mediateur, or the the, the, the mediator. Um, Ernst Thomann, La FIFA et le Développement de Football International. And he's talking uh, in that chapter. Uh, Philippe is talking about. Uh, Ernst Thomann's role in bringing Germany back into the football world after World War II. Um, Gregory, could you tell us? I mean, I, I don't, I don't mean to quiz you on Philippe's um, work, um, and you can just tell me. I know I don't want to do that <laughs> if you don't want to. But um, I, I, I guess I'd love to to get your sense of it. Was there something um, from your point of view? specifically Swiss about this need to bring Germany back into into international football or was it or was it only because the Swiss Football Federation wanted to benefit from having some competitive matches with the German with German clubs across the border so I guess I'm asking you is it is it purely you know functional is it about just making profits for these for these small clubs and for the and for the federation or is there actually a sentiment that you did you see a Swiss sentiment about using sport to kind of unite peoples? I, I don't know if we can say that the fact that sports unite people as an ideology had something. Uh, of course, it was in the minds of people active then or back then, but I think we have to we can look at three several levels. So, of course, if you look let's say almost on the pitch uh, the border with germany is one of the the more important for switzerland because it's one of the only one which is not a mountain so it's very easy to go from switzerland to germany uh, as long as far as you have bridges over the rhine so and and towns in the northern part of switzerland are used to play with towns or with football clubs from towns from the south part of germany so it's sometimes easier to play with the other side of the Rhine than with other parts of, of Switzerland. So they were used to play together. So, of course, when the war was over in 1945, they couldn't understand why they could not just continue or play again against those football clubs they were uh, competing against every other weekend before the war. So it's this was really existing, and we went to local archives, especially to look like local journals and things like this. And it was very like objective, like on the ground, people could not understand why they could not. So, and this was very clear also for the, for the football federation that this was existing. But at first they just left the clubs play like as if they hadn't seen that they were playing with German clubs. And of course it's not a problem because there was no problem to play against those clubs, like there was no disease in Germany that could be transmitted to Swiss, etc. So, like Nazism is not a disease, so it's something that existed, of course, but 
Yeah. Uh, the second level is, of course, uh, for for the national federation, it, it was important. Like before the Second World War, uh, Switzerland had played against the national team of Germany more than twenty times uh, since the first game in uh, nineteen oh eight. So it was something that where they were used to organize to organize. Sorry every year so there was one game in germany one game in switzerland one game in germany one game etc so and it was always the best affluence uh, in the stadium when they were hosting a game against germany so it hosting this game was meant meaning money so it was for them for the swiss national federation it was important to uh, continue to have these relations with with germany and in the third level is like is at the level of Ernst Thoman, who was already involved in FIFA in those years, so at the end of the 40s and then in the 50s. And of course, it's also important because Switzerland had the aim at that moment to organize the World Cup, which they will organize in 1954. So, and if you want to organize the World Cup, which is already quite something in the 50s, you had to play with the FIFA rules. So you could not just say, okay, let's play against Germany and we don't have to deal with FIFA. So it's it's quite interesting, all those uh, constellation of, of problems and of actors because all the levels are important. And it's important to say that, yes, on the pitches, like teams were playing against each other and that's fine. And then you have the complex system of sport interests geopolitical interest, competition interest, personal interests, which are entering uh, in, in question. So it's, it's, it's quite, yeah, a very interesting period at the time. I think, um, and he's not here, so we can compliment him. Philippe um, does a great job of bringing all that together in his, in his chapter. And I wish we had time to talk in more detail about um, Benjamin Zumwalt and Quentin Tonnerre's work as well on the on the on the um, Mayer brothers and the internet and the Olympic Committee. Um, we don't really. Um, I want to stress for listeners that this work um, is if if you're if you're francophone, um, if you can read French, is worth a look. It's definitely offering some new avenues for thinking about. Um, sportification in Europe and um, internationalization the internationalization of sport in Europe and it's from from the perspective of a, of a various uh, distinguished group of francophone scholars um, who are bringing a different point of view to it than I think you see in the work of people like uh, Barbara Keys who looks kind of at this international sporting community from the perspective of an anglophone scholar so this is just a slightly different point of view, which is definitely worth um, examining. And so I strongly encourage people to check this out. And this is the question I always like to end on. So I'll ask you this question as well, Gregory, before we say goodbye. And that question is, what do we have to look forward to next? You told me before we started recording that um, that this is a very tough time for doing research, but in the future when it gets easier, uh, what are the things that you're hoping to to put together next? I I, I can if I want to if I can summarize everything like uh, first of all you I don't know if, if you if you mentioned this but uh, people also 
of course they are they can discover the book uh, which is in French but it's also a book which is 100% available online so they if they go to the publisher's website they can find the PDF they can upload uh, the PDF very very uh, directly so it's it's something which is now a rule in Switzerland so if we get some funding to have this kind of book published it has to be online on the first day so that's something quite interesting and if this book has been has been possible it's also because we met during the process a very very competent uh, publisher and we not we we don't do enough to say that the publisher are, are the key actors of this uh, research world so uh, edition alfil is a very very uh, interesting publishing house and they are very supportive and they are very uh, interested and it's it's perhaps the link i can i can i can make because I, i'm preparing right now another book with the same uh, publisher which is going to be again in french but it's something which will be which will gather uh, chapters uh, from abroad not only from switzerland but also from the whole europe let's say the title is going to be la fabrique des corps nationaux so it's more about body history or the way national states built or used body to build uh, themselves. Uh, so that's that's the, the project we have now uh, with also not directly with Philippe and Christophe, but they will be part of the of several chapters uh, again. That sounds fascinating. I'm I'm already excited about this book. <laughs> And um, thank you very much for joining us. We've been talking with uh, my my good friend, my colleague Gregory Quinn. He is a well. I won't I won't regale you again with the French. He's a senior lecturer at the University of Lausanne in their sport uh, in their sport history institute, and um, he is the one of the editors of the book we've been discussing, which is Des Réseaux et des Hommes. Participation et contribution de la Suisse à l'internationalisation du sport from 1912 to 1972. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Gregory. Thank you.